Last week, Joe reminded us, or sorry, introduced us to chapter 3, where Peter shifts gears from uh, dealing with false prophets all the way through chapter 2. Suddenly, in chapter 3, there's a shift, and he focuses attention on uh, the second coming. And he talks mainly about scoffers, people who were mocking the believers for uh, expecting Jesus to come back. And uh, it seemed that they were waiting in vain. And Peter reminded his readers that just like in the days of Noah, where God pronounced a judgment and said he's going to destroy the earth by water, he waits 120 years. And Noah uses that time to build this ark. And Noah is a messenger. He is a messenger throughout that time. It's an opportunity for the people to repent. Until the waters come, until the people have been completely wiped out, they have an opportunity to repent. And they don't take it. And just like in the days of Noah, just as there was a delay then, finally God does respond and the earth is destroyed by water. Even now, we can be sure that the second coming will happen. And this time, the judgment is going to be by fire. And though it tarries, though we seem to be in delay, though we wait, we are certain it is going to come because God has spoken and His track record shows that He keeps His word. The church continues to be mocked today. Peter was writing just 30 to 40 years after Jesus had died. The mocking had already started. Just 30 or 40 years. Peter was an old man, and he was you know, in his 30s when, uh, when Jesus called him. So he's an old man when he's writing this letter. It is not a lot of time, and yet the mocking has already started. How much more so 2,000 years later? I'm sure we've all experienced times where we have felt mocked for expecting Jesus to come back, and we're living our lives in a certain way in light of that, and the world scoffs at that. They laugh at that. They feel that we are absolutely wasting our lives in this expectation of something that clearly isn't coming, and even to us it might feel, God, why is there such a delay? My daughter, uh, one of her favorite questions is, Dad, what's taking so long? And she'll say that after seconds. She goes, Dad, I want Milo. I'll make you Milo. Boil the kettle. Dad, what's taking so long? She's got zero patience. If I don't meet her request immediately, I get the question. She feels let down by my timing. And some of us can be like that. Pretty immature in the way that we're thinking towards God and His movements and His timing. We might be asking ourselves, what's taking God so long? Is he indifferent to what is going on down here? Why the wait? Peter answers these questions in verses 8 and 9 of 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to ask you to turn there. If you've got your Bibles or if you've got an app on your phone, it is going to be up on the screen. Um, So you will be able to follow there as well if you don't have access to either of those two things. I'm going to read uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. But... Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, 
but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to your word. Lord, we're so grateful for your revelation to us in your word. Joey spoke about this last week, Lord, that our faith comes by revelation. And um, we want to pray this morning as we sit here, Lord, as we listen, as we make ourselves attentive to your word, would you come and speak to us? Would you come and reveal your truth to us? I pray, Lord, that you'd soften our hearts even now and we would hear clearly what the Spirit is saying to us this morning. Lord, I pray that our hearts would respond to you, that we wouldn't push you away. We wouldn't allow ourselves to get hardened and ignore what you're saying to us, but that this morning there would be a receptiveness, a, a welcoming of your Spirit, a welcoming of you and what you want to do in our lives. We want to be so soft in your hands, Lord. You are the potter and we are the clay. Come and mold us and shape us and use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God has a sense of humor. A few weeks ago, um, I started doing a bit of research on God and time. I wasn't tasked with it. I didn't realize the sermon was coming up. I just like time, and I like God, and I was trying to figure out how those two things work together. It would have been better if I never looked at it. <laughs> um, I realized very quickly that my level of intellect is not high enough for me to be able to grapple with these deeper things. Um, the first person I read on the matter was a guy called Michael Eaton, and he defeated me in a matter of seconds. I couldn't forget trying to get through the book. I couldn't get through the first sentence. The first sentence confused me, and I'm still grappling with it. And then... I thought, okay, well, one of my favorite apologists is a guy called William Lane Craig. He is a man of massive intellect, but he's got this wonderful ability to simplify what he shares so that even the simple, like me, can understand it. And so I thought, let me hear what William Lane Craig has to say about God in time. If anyone's going to simplify it for me to follow, it'll be him. And sadly, not even William Lane Craig could... Um, build the bridge, the chasm between my intellect and his intellect, it was impossible for him to make this simple enough for me to understand. And so I had to humble myself and get back to matters more on my level. Start singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And when I saw that Joey was only going to preach up to verse 8, and he was going to leave verse 8 to me, and he's on the camera there laughing even now, I had to laugh because my first point this morning is God and time. And it seems to me that even though I don't understand this very well and I can't take you very far, the Lord just wants me to take you as far as I can go this morning. So if you're hoping for something highly profound, I'm going to disappoint you. Um, I can only take you as far as I can, so let's start with the text. In the, the first part of verse 8, it says, But do not overlook this one fact. What's very interesting, and you might remember something very similar was shared by Joey last week. And if you track back a few verses to verse 5, Peter starts with almost the exact same phrase. 
He says in verse 5, For they deliberately overlook this fact. Speaking about the scoffers. And so it's almost the exact same phrase, just addressed to two different people. So let's look at verse 5 quickly. In verse 5 he says, For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. The scoffers were deliberately overlooking the facts that in the past, God had pronounced judgment and it had happened. And Peter takes it as factual. It happened. The flood did come. People did die. They did perish. Those people not wanting to pay attention to what God's going to do in the future deliberately overlook the evidence of the past. You can know the fire is coming. Because the water already came. It was pronounced in the past. There was a delay, 120 years, and it came. The fire judgment is pronounced. Peter uh, mentions it in verse 7. And yes, we do seem to feel like we're in a delay. Even the church is feeling that. That's why Peter now says to the church, you mustn't overlook a fact either. They are overlooking something, and you are overlooking something. What were the church overlooking? Well, in verse 8 it says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. The church were overlooking the fact of God's relationship to time. God's relationship to time is different to ours. We are in time. Everything happens to us and has always happened to us sequentially. It's the only way we, we think. We can't think outside of that. Have you ever watched movies where they try and play with time? It never makes any sense. The more you think about it, the more none of it works. We can't understand outside of time how things play out. And we cannot, from being inside of time and being completely um, uh, dependent on the relationship between the earth and the sun and the days and the hours, we cannot take someone like God who is independent of that, and apply our thinking to him and call him slow, which is what often we feel. I don't know if I understand this fully. I'm just going to say what I think. God is above time. So Michael Eaton says, whenever someone says God is outside of time, and you might have explained this in the past to someone, I always do, God is outside of time, he goes, I'm not sure they know what they're saying. Because I don't know what they're saying. This is high intellect. I don't know what they're saying. I don't think they know either. So I read that and go, okay, Michael, I don't understand this fact as well as I think I do. But God is above time. He's not inside of it. He doesn't relate to it the way that we relate to it. He sees time against eternity. There is no long or short in eternity. Nothing is long. Nothing is short. It's all the same. He's not dependent on it at all. He doesn't need any amount of time to get anything done. He can get done in one day what can take thousands of years. That's his power. And we've got to be very careful of trying to get overly ma mathematical with this statement. Because what 
people tend to want to do is go, oh, great. So if a thousand years is like a day to God, then every time we read a day in the Bible, that means it's a thousand years and we can start to work stuff out about when he's coming back. And I find it um, a bit sad. I don't think that's the application Peter wants us to make over here. But we fall into this so easily. Even the guy who wrote the famous worship song, um, It Is Well With My Soul. I don't think many people know how that story ends. I'm going to ruin a little bit of a, a testimonial story for you here with the ending, but it applies to what we're dealing with here. So this man, I forget his surname now, but his first name's Horatio. This man loses his family in a shipwreck. The only person who survives is his wife. So they were going from America to England. When uh, the wife gets to England, she sends back a three-word message saying, alone, and I can't remember the other two words, but he got from that that everyone had perished except her. He gets on a ship. When he gets to the same part of the Atlantic Ocean where his children, and some, there were many children and some of them were toddlers, when he gets to the same part of the Atlantic Ocean where his children perished, that's where he pens the song, It is well with my soul. This was a mature believer, a godly man, able to endure great tragedy, yet worship God and write a song that has been a blessing to us for centuries. I think he wrote it in the 19th century. But we need to watch the warning here. Because this is at a time of his life when he's about 40, in his 40s. He is close to the Lord. He's tracking with the Lord. He's doing what God wants him to do. And the song is part of it. But at the end of his life, he, loses, he starts losing the plot. He starts getting fixated on dates and times and predictions. He, he moves himself to Israel and brings a whole bunch of people with him, and he is convinced that Jesus is coming back in his lifetime at a specific date. And that becomes the focus of his ministry and his life. And it doesn't end up being true. Even a mature believer can get fixated on something that God doesn't want them to actually end up with. And I see lots of people focusing on the timing of when Jesus is coming back, and it's going to be this year, and this year, and this, and uh, it's almost all they think about. And I don't think that that's the application. I know that we need to be ready, so please, I'm going to get there. Hopefully by the end, if you're starting to feel uncomfortable with my interpretation so far, you're going to feel safer at the end. But I do think that we need to be careful of trying to get mathematical. I don't think Peter's saying a day is a thousand years and you can work stuff out. I think Peter's saying long and short don't matter to God. They are the same. And so you can't look at him and go, God, why are you taking so long? In his eyes, Jesus walked the earth two days ago. You also, and I want to say this, some of you who are very focused on end times, you will say things like, Jesus can't come back now because this and this and this need to happen. And I want to warn you against that. You can't interpret Scripture safely that way and feel safe in your application. I'll give you an example. Joey walks into my office. He said I walked into his office last week. I'm just going to correct that. He walks into my office while I'm working, sees that I'm reading through something to do with this, 
preparing for my sermon and goes, wow, that's heavy reading. And we start having a discussion. And then someone phones and Joe leaves and I'm interested in what Joe had to say. So after the phone call, I go into his office. He wasn't lying. I did end up in his office. And we did talk for about an hour. And we were trying to figure some of this stuff out. And one of the things Joey said to me was, Mark, one of the end times teachers uh, that he'd read says that at the current uh, rate of conversion, Jesus can only come back in 3,000 years. Now, that's not what Joey believes. That's just something Joey's sharing. My response to that man would be, I hope your bags are packed by Wednesday. God can get 3,000 years worth of work done that you still think needs to happen to Israel and to this and to this. He can do that. The amount of work he can get done between uh, sunrise and sunsets is massive. If your application to hearing this is, this is still going to take a really long time and we can live the way we want, you are completely misapplying Scripture. I truly believe Jesus could come back today because um, what I'm saying is the amount of work he can get done today is far beyond what we can imagine. The correct application isn't to become indifferent to because it's got so long still to happen. It's to realize, wow, what God can get done even in a short period of time. So why? Why are we waiting? Well, before... Before I answer that, I must say this. This is very important. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, and I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. This is why we cannot get fixated on dates. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 26, Jesus says this, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Even Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour, or the angels. How men think they can start working things out and giving us specific dates when Jesus has already told us. Now he says, be ready. So he's not saying, we, you don't know when it's going to happen, so get lazy. He's saying, be ready because you don't know when it's going to happen. You've got to be ready. It could be today. If someone, so we fixated on 2,000 years since Christ. So I, I joke with Anita. I say, Anita, do you know that uh, when people say, Jesus is coming back 2,000 years after he died, and everyone thought that was going to be Y2K. That's when he was born. <laughs> he died in 33 AD. Do you know we haven't hit 2,000 yet since that? So I joke with Anita saying, I hope you're ready by 2033 AD. We've got 13, 12 years to go. But even that is a joke, because what I do with that is, if I really believe that, that gives me 12 years to live it up. If I could really nail down the time and the date to a specific date, it won't make me work harder. It will motivate me to wait longer. And so I don't think we are meant to know the specific date or time because I think it impacts the way that we're going to live our life. Why, how does God work? God works according to spiritual conditions. Okay, I'm going to explain this. Please listen. This is important. God promises Abraham that he's going to inherit the land. But that only happens thousands of years later. And he says at a certain point that he is waiting for the iniquity of the Amorites. So those were one of the people groups living in the land. He's waiting for the iniquity of the Amorites to be complete. There's not a time or a date to that. 
That's a spiritual condition. Once the iniquity, the sin of the Amorites is complete, the Israelites will go in and God will uh, punish the Amorites through the Israelites. And that's exactly what happens. Our time that we are living in is called the time of the Gentiles. We are in the time of the Gentiles. And there are spiritual conditions associated to this time that when it is complete, that's when the next time moves. You can't put a month or a date on it. These are spiritual conditions. That's how God works. And God can change those conditions very quickly so that they become ready. So Peter goes on to show that his readers that God is not slow. There are reasons for this apparent delay, and it's not indifference. He's not up there going, oh, I don't really see how much problems you guys all have, so I'm just going to let you stay in them. We might feel like that. It's not inability to act timelessly. Peter says that God, it's because of God's patience. The Greek word here is macro thumeo, and macro means long, and thumeo means suffering. So God is long suffering towards us. It literally means he has a long fuse. Some of you with a short fuse might appreciate that, but God's got a long fuse. I've got a short fuse as well. But don't misunderstand the fact that this might be the longest fuse you've ever seen. It's still lit. It's burning down. It has a part where it's going to go boom. It doesn't matter how long it is. It don't, people misunderstand and they take for granted God's patience. And they use it as an opportunity to live freely. And, and they think that maybe later in my life I'm going to uh, change my ways and then live according to God. But for now I want to live it up. And they are taking advantage of God's patience. The reason why we are waiting is because God is so patient. And He's not just patient towards the unbeliever. If you read the text, I love this. It says in verse um, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not just the unbeliever waiting for them to repent. He's patient towards us. Think about this. If God judged sin with expedience, none of us would be saved. If he judged our sin the moment we sinned, we would all be lost. But because God showed long-suffering towards you, you were given time to repent. And you have. Many of you have. Praise God for that. Isn't it ironic that we wait now, looking, going, God, hurry up, get you, when we ourselves have benefited from that long-suffering? Spurgeon relates this tension in a prayer. He says this. And I've lost it, so I'm going to have to paraphrase. Oh, here we go. Spurgeon has said, While I have prayed, come quickly, I have often felt inclined to contradict myself and cry, Yet tarry for a while, good Lord. Let mercy's day be lengthened. Let the heathen yet receive their Savior. I have seen this tension at work within me. I long for Christ's return, church. I'm sure many of you do, and I think it's right. I think we're meant to. The scripture ends with the call, come, Lord Jesus, come. So if you've got this, this cry within your heart for Jesus, come back, I agree with you. 
We long for that. I'm tired of the sinful body. I'm tired of living in a world full of corruption and hurt and pain. I'm tired of leadership that cannot be trusted. I want godly leadership. I want Jesus' leadership. I want to live under that. That is going to be incredible. It's something to long for. But while I'm longing for it, the thought of Him coming today also gets me with, there's people that I love and pray for who haven't yet bowed their knee to Christ. So Lord, please, wait. Let them turn to you. Let them repent. There's a tension in me where I don't just want him to come back and for people to just be thrown and cast off into hell. I want more time for people to repent. My second point this morning is God has a heart for the lost. Peter makes it clear that God is waiting because he does not want anyone to perish. He waits so that everyone will have ample opportunity to repent. At the end, when people are judged, no one will be able to say, I didn't have enough time. That's the point. To a long time to repent. No one gets to say, I didn't have enough time. God allows a lot of time to repent and be saved. Ezekiel says this. I don't have the scripture on the screen. I'm going to share the text with you. Write it down. Read it later. But in Ezekiel 33 verse 11, Ezekiel 33 verse 11, it says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. God is not longing to cast people off into hell. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants them to turn and repent, but they cannot be saved unless they do that. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is God's desire. He wants everyone to be saved. He doesn't want anyone to end up in hell. But do not misunderstand this verse. Peter is not saying everyone will be saved. That is not true. He's saying that this is God's wish. It's not going to be what happens. The rest of Scripture confirms that for us. It doesn't matter how long God waits. Some people are never going to repent. It's got nothing to do with time. They are not going to do it. You could extend it thousands of years and they won't do it. In Revelation, it says when all of those things are happening and people are getting burnt by the sun and attacked by birds and terrible things are happening to them, it says they curse God. They still refuse to repent. They will never repent. That's why you cannot believe everyone's going to be saved because it's got to do with repentance. God will wait a long time to give you every opportunity to repent. But sadly, many people will choose not to. This is not a a verse that uh, defends universalism. As soon as you start to think, oh, if God wants everyone to be saved, then everyone's going to be saved, you've moved far away from what Scripture teaches. Many people are going to end up lost because they don't repent. But that's not God's heart. He wants everyone to be saved. In this last week, 
I want to be careful here because this is someone else's story and because I'm a storyteller, I too easily steal stories. And I want this lady to share the story. So I'm going to leave out enough details to let her do it as well. But in this last week, some, one of our church sisters lost someone very dear to her. Someone she has prayed for for decades. And this person's heart was hard. She told me, my sibling, I've got two siblings, one of them saved, the other one's not. So the other one that saved, we always prayed for the one that's not. And, and this, this other sibling said to her once, he's a tough nut to crack. This week he died. He's in another continent. She cannot get to him. She cannot talk to him. His, part of what he's been struggling with is COVID, and it affected his brain, and so he couldn't even have conversations with him for the last couple of weeks, and he died. The morning that he dies, and he, she doesn't know he's going to die, because he had, they thought he was recovering from COVID, so the hope was it was coming right. The morning that he dies, she's praying for him, and she has a vision of a nut opening. And she knows it's her brother. And she has peace now that on his last day, God did what she's always prayed for, even though she can't confirm it. Isn't that wonderful? God is mighty to save, church. There is no one beyond his reach. And even to the very end, it can always happen. Have you stopped praying? And I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. I've stopped praying for people before that I love and wanted to, them to get saved. And I've reached a point of you can't save them. I know what that's like. But have you stopped praying for someone? I want to encourage you. Don't stop. God can change hearts. He can break them open even at the very end. You must have hope that even on the last day, the person can get saved. Don't stop praying for them. But at the same time, I want to offer you a warning to this story. So there's hope in the story. The hope is someone this week got saved on their last day. I hope you're praying for people. I hope there's people you love close to you that you're not going to give up on. But here's the warning. If you're sitting here today and you haven't yet got your house in order and sorted things out with Christ, how many uh, conversions are recorded in Scripture where people gave their life to Jesus on the last day? Do you know? Does anyone want to give it a go? So the question is, how many conversions on their last day in Scripture recorded for us to look at so that we can hope for that to happen? Someone did say something. One. Do you know when it was? The thief on the cross. Listen to what Augustine says about that. This was brilliant. I'm not going to steal it. I wanted to. I was going to like, paraphrase it in a different way. But, but this is what Augustine says about this. There is one case of deathbed repentance recorded. The penitent thief. That no one should despair. And only one. That no one should presume. I want to say that again because I want you to think about it. There is one case recorded in Scripture of deathbed repentance, the penitent thief, that no one should despair 
It can happen, like it happened to this lady's brother this week. It can happen. Don't give up on people. Oh, but if you're sitting here today and you haven't got your life sorted out with Christ and you're going, no, I've still got a long life in front of me and I, there'll come a time and even if it's on my last day, I'll do it. There is only one recorded case in the whole of Scripture so that no one will presume you will get that far. The fewest amount of people that are saved will be saved this way. If there are a million people saved, the fewest amount will be saved on their last day. If you are waiting for your last day, you are playing with fire, literally. I've got a brother-in-law that I bry with. He's completely lost. He owns a... Uh, I hope he's not watching this. Um, he owns a, a bottle store. He lives it up. I mean, it's, it's like apt that he owns the bottle store. I mean, he consumes most of the stuff that he, that he manages and sells. Every time we meet with this family, Anita and I are praying for him. I'm just trying to take every opportunity. Over every, he knows it's coming. Over every bri, eventually I'm going to go, Rudolph, when are you going to surrender your heart to Christ? And he says to me, Mark, I know I must do that. But I first want to live my life. I'm going to do that later. How many people think this way? Many. They don't understand. We think we're going to live forever and we think we're in control of how this ends and we think we're going to get a moment at the end. But there's only one case in Scripture of someone giving their life to Christ on their last day. Don't presume that's going to happen to you. In summary, let me check how I'm doing for time. Okay, summary is good. Peter acknowledges that waiting is hard. He can see the effect that it's having on the flock. Some are becoming swayed by the scoffers, even after 30 or 40 years. So if you're getting swayed after 2,000 years, the Bible is right where you are. He reminds them that God is not on our timetable. Any apparent delay is only because of his patience. Patience that every believer has benefited from. Why do we consider him slow for making us wait while he patiently waits to bring more brothers and sisters home? as he has already done with us. And here's my application. This is so important. I've been so expectant for the sermon, and it comes down to this. Because you've got to apply this correctly. This is not about date-keeping and predicting when it's going to happen. The question you've got to ask yourself is, are you ready? Jesus taught you to be ready. He said, be watchful. He said, no one knows when it's happening. It can, and the next verse, Peter says, it happens like a thief in the night. They don't tell you they're coming. This Bible reading plan that a lot of you are on, Robert McShane, he loved to go to his church and say, do you think Jesus is coming back um, soon? And when he heard people say no, because and these were strong Christians with biblical evidence of this has to happen first, and this has to happen first, this has to happen first, his response to them was, um, do you realize that he's going to come back when you don't expect it? So the fact that you don't expect him to come back because you think all this stuff has to happen is actually hastening his return, according to Robert McShane. He often joked with his congregation in that way. Jesus taught us to be ready. It is unwise to assume we have time to get a house in order. You should be asking yourself, are you ready? If he came back today, are you ready? And I don't just mean ready in terms of you've given your life to Christ. Are you working in his vineyard? Christian, believer who is saved, 
Are you working in his vineyard? I'm going to be vulnerable with you now. The best marriage advice I ever received was from a comedian in Grahamstown at the Grahamstown Festival. I'll never forget it. Anita and I were dating. If I was married, I would have learned far quicker, but we were only in the dating phase, so I forgot this piece of advice, and I got burnt. But the advice was this. This comedian stands around us and goes, don't ever let her catch you doing nothing. <laughs> that was his number one piece of advice. Don't ever let her catch you doing nothing. If she is doing something, you better be doing something or there's going to be big trouble. So I'm a teacher in my first year of marriage. I come home before my wife. I switch on the TV. I put my feet up. It was great. And Anita would come home and she'd be grumpy. But we're not in the we've communicated well phase of marriage and learned each other, so we just let this issue build up. This happened for months. Eventually, I address it and I say to her, love, why are you always so grumpy when you come home? And so she says to me, it irritates me when I come home and I see you doing nothing. <laughs> now, learn from me. I come home. I go to the dish, uh, the, the basins. I get everything ready. Soap, water, dishes are ready to go. Then I go sit on the couch. <laughs> okay? Then I switch on the TV. Then I put my feet up. Um, I know what time she's going to come home. I hear the car in the driveway. I jump to my feet. I rush off to the dishes and I furiously start washing. I've realized that it's not about finishing the task. It's about being busy when she comes in. So she comes in, and she is happy. It works. It only works because I know when she's coming home. This is why God doesn't want to tell us when he's coming back. We are not going to work in this vineyard unless we believe he's coming back today. And he can. So I'm asking you, are you ready? If he came back today, will he find you working? And some of you might be saying, what does that look like? And the second application point helps you. The second question I'm going to ask you this morning is, are others around you ready? John Calvin was terribly ill in his final years. He's a great theologian. He's made a massive impact on... Uh, the Reformed Church. Uh, and um, in his final years, he continued teaching from his bed. He couldn't get up. He was so sick. And this isn't with cameras and teaching everyone. P students would come up to his room, sit on chairs, and he would teach them from his bed. He was so sick. Eventually, someone said to him, John, you're not going to recover. You're working yourself. And he did it for hours. He never stopped having students come in. That was his gift to the church. That's what God had called him to do. And he taught students until the day he died. He was horribly ill. And when he was pressed and asked, why don't you rest? You're not going to recover. Why don't you rest? He said, what? And let my Savior come and find me doing nothing. Never. 
Now, I'm not trying to make a presumption on you if you're very sick this morning and you're, how you're uh, working for God. I understand that sickness impairs us. My heart for you is to see the heart of a man who loves God. Nothing's going to stop him from doing what God has called him to do. Not even being unable to climb out of bed. He, to his last day, in case Jesus comes back, Jesus is going to find me doing what he called me to do. And that was to help other people. At Bible study two weeks ago, I shared two names. God had put two people on my heart. We prayed together. I then, during the week, had to get the courage up to call them. I let the Bible study know again. I said, guys, pray for... Because I know I'm not going to do it unless I build accountability in. I was already making the excuses the day I had to make the phone calls. I, I was letting the time run. I was procrastinating. I had a meeting with Joe at 3.30. At 20 past 3, I hadn't done the phone calls yet. What thoughts are going through my mind? Well, you've left it too late now, Mark. going to have to do it tomorrow, Mark. But because I've got a Bible study who I've told early in the morning, guys, I'm going to do this thing today. Please pray for me and I know they're going to ask me, I make the phone calls. And the first person is an atheist, and I say to him, buddy, I want to meet with you tomorrow. And he says yes. So because I make that phone call, we have an opportunity to share, and I do. And I warned him. I said, you need to repent. And he used to be a Christian. You need to repent. The second person I called won't answer the phone because they know what I'm going to do. And they won't respond to my messages. I'm still pursuing them. Because the time of repentance has not ended. In my Bible study, three people share God's prompting on their hearts. And we are praying for them to be obedient. I went to another Bible study last week. Where someone shared how God had prompted someone that she didn't know, a stranger... And she pushed it off. They were both in a hospital room. God prompted her at night. The whole night passed, she felt that God wanted her to share, and she kept putting it off, putting it off. Next morning, she went and she did it, and she shared her faith with the person. And when that story gets shared, someone else in the Bible study puts their hand up and goes, God's prompting me. Will you pray for me? There's this person I need to share with. Lindiwe stood here after five days of prayer and fasting, and some of you are nodding your heads, and she said to you, God wants us to go after souls. This is what matters now. Soul winning. And we really believe it's a word from the Lord, from five days of prayer and fasting for our church. It hasn't left us. She came to me last week. This one was just for me, but I'm sharing it with you. She comes up to me after the service and she says, we need revival. Amen. We need God to wake us up so that we start getting ready. And working in his vineyard, part of being ready is telling people around you that God is coming. If Jesus came back today, will he see you doing that? Will he see you doing that? And if not, start. And if you can't do it on your own, join a small group. And I'm going to push these small groups. We need to get this culture going where we start responding to the prompts that God has put on our hearts. If God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. If God is waiting so that they can repent, then we better be busy joining him in that work. And there are people all around you he wants to use you in. Are you willing?
Is he going to come back and find you ready and working in his vineyard? stand together in your presence I quiet my soul and I hear your voice in my spirit I hear the sound of salvation song Jesus I will wait in your word, O Lord, there your spirit speaks, bringing life to the weary soul, to the depths of me, Jesus, Jesus. to you this morning but we want to be able to say these words with all our hearts that we love you Jesus with all our hearts that our actions respond in the same way so let's sing I love you with all my heart I love you with all my soul
love you. I love you with all my heart. I love you with all my soul, Lord. I love you with all my strength. With all that is, with I'll sing. I'll sing because you saved my Morning, SBC. So, my name's Dee. I grew up in this church. I was raised in this church. Feels like home. So, I recently went through something in my life where I've been very bitter. Um, There's been a lot of water under the bridge, a lot of tears. And my small group made me realize that if I was harboring unforgiveness, I was harboring sin in my heart. And I lost my my job in December on the 14th. And it was something I'd been doing for a long time. And I got more bitter. But I dealt with it. But I thought I was dealing with it like we all do. And my small group made me realize that bitterness is unforgiveness, which is sin. And until we learn to let go of those things in our lives, the resentments, We're actually sinning against ourselves, and we're not allowing God to give us grace. And within three days of me making peace with myself and my maker and asking for him to to help me release myself of this resentment I'd been harboring, God blessed me with an amazing job. And when I say amazing, it is double what I could have asked for or dreamed for. It was my, my own resentments and my own sin was what was standing in the way of me experiencing God's grace. Thanks. That's all I wanted to say to you. I really feel this morning that the Lord is speaking to us. Mm. I just want to give another moment as the music plays um, for you to just listen to him and respond to him. Maybe you have something else that you would like to share of what the Lord has done. We can use that this morning, opportunity to come share with the elders, and you can share. But let's respond to the Lord, not just sing some songs. Yeah. 
So the music will play and just take some time to respond to him. saved my soul yeah. I'll sing of your love forever I'll worship with all my heart with all that is within I'll sing I'll sing cause you saved my soul I'll sing of your love forever. I'll worship with all my heart. With all that is within me. Morning. Um, the last few weeks since the the five days of prayer and fasting, I've really had the impression that God is calling us to something deeper. And our inheritance that we have is not a golden crown, and it's not a diamond, and it's not a pearl of wisdom. It's people. And our, we are called to be workers in the vineyard. And I've, I've really been pondering over the scripture, I'm sure you all know of Ruth and Naomi when they are, they, great tragedy happens in their lives. They lose the men, the, the, their livelihoods, their source of income, their protection. They lose the men in their family. And they're forced to change and go to a different land. And they end up gleaning from Boaz's field. This man called Boaz, a rich man who, who has this amazing field. And and Naomi, um, Ruth, every day goes and she, she waits until everybody has finished picking up and then she picks up the little bits that are left at the edge of the field. And she takes it home and her and her mother-in-law, Naomi, they, they eat and they, they survive this way. But Boaz sees her and Boaz says to his workers, make sure that you leave droppings for her that she can pick up a little bit more and her abundance increases and then one day she decides to make a step of faith and she actually moves closer to Boaz and she begins to sleep at his feet I want to ask you when was the last time you slept at Jesus's feet when was the last time that you actually stopped worrying about where your provision was and you stopped and you actually did something very daring and you actually slept at Jesus' feet. Ruth now, she sleeps at Boaz's feet and eventually I, there was just this incredible revelation. Boaz is the owner of that field and she eventually marries him. We are the bride of Christ. We are Ruth. 
we are the ones who need to push into Jesus because he wants to marry us. And he doesn't want us to have the small little gleanings at the bottom of the field that people have left. He wants us to be a partaker with him as an owner of that field. And the field that I'm talking about is the one that is ripened and white until harvest. And we all know what that field is, and that is souls. I am here because somebody told me about Jesus. You are here because somebody told you about Jesus. And sometimes it can be the hardest thing to make yourself vulnerable and share your faith. But the same cup of kindness that was extended towards me is extended to every sinner that we have overlooked and that we overlook every day. And we don't mean it as a bad thing. But I want to ask you now, are you looking for the gleanings in the field? Like Ruth is, are you hungry for more of God? Are you hungry for the things that God is wanting for you? Because when you start to look for the little seeds and the gleanings that are on the floor, there is great reward and there is greatness to be filled in your hunger in your heart. And as you start to do that, you are filling up and harvesting the field that Jesus has made ripe for us. What a great encouragement. (laughs) God is good. That's all I can say. God is good. We've heard testimonies today of his goodness and his grace and his love and his his faithfulness. He is good. And uh, what uh, came across my mind at the Bible or this home sale I attended uh, this week was God doesn't want to destroy the ungodly. (laughs) He doesn't want anybody to be lost. And even in the passage this morning, he's holding back for that lost soul. And our responsibility is to go out and find that lost soul. And they're in our family, as Mark has said. They're in our work environment as we all know, <laughs> they're at our school, they're at wherever we frequent, the places we frequent. So just to encourage you this morning, <laughs> let us go and find uh, the scoffer. Let us go and find the ungodly. Let us go and find those that uh, keep procrastinating and do not have or need the push to say, yeah, Lord, I'm for you and not against you.